Our sermon text today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30, and also chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your son is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you keep me from a lightheartedness and would you protect me from a hardheartedness? And would you work in all of our lives so that the the great matters and weight of eternity that we're going to be thinking about together this morning, that they wouldn't just bounce off our hearts like some truism? but that by your Spirit's ministry among us and upon us and in us, that the weightiness of the future life that every single human being faces, either in heaven or in hell, that those realities would break through all the fog, 
all the stereotypes, all the cartoons, all the skepticism, all the unbelief. All the wishful thinking. So that the full glory of your son would stand forth as the king of his people who has rescued them from a great darkness. And as the savior who is still this morning ready, willing and able to save. We pray that he would save and that he would build up his saints. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Um, I'm glad that as a church we don't have a tradition of of um, sending our children down the center aisle of the church with palm leaves. Uh, because I think that reflects a total misunderstanding of Palm Sunday. Uh, palm Sunday is uh, perhaps, uh, other than Calvary, the most ironic of uh, days in the church calendar. Because the praise of the people and the palm leaves that they throw out uh, or that they wave at Jesus, it's all totally contrary to his mission. Why does uh, Jesus enter Jerusalem? Well, if you ask the people, the people would say, and they, and they use good words, right? I mean, Hosanna, son of David, save us, son of David. They use good words. They take them right from Psalm 118. It's good stuff. But then their actions speak much louder than their words. They throw their cloaks down, which is what you would do for a victorious conquering king. And then they, then they have the palm leaves, which are a symbol of Jewish nationalism. So when they are saying son of David, they are thinking he has come He has come to restore the glory of our people. They've heard, and John tells us in John chapter 12, that the reason the crowd has gathered with excitement that now that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem is because they've heard that He's raised Lazarus from the dead in nearby Bethany. But the way they interpret His entrance is that here's this conquering hero who at last is going to bring this vindication to our people. It's very political. That's why the people think that Jesus is entering Jerusalem. But why does Jesus think he is entering Jerusalem? That's really the key, right? Why does Jesus think he's entering Jerusalem? And I think the answer to that is we, we could, it's the same answer for everything that he does in uh, his ministry, everything that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John record that he does in his earthly ministry. It is to fulfill the mission his father gave him that was explained to Joseph all the way back in chapter one when the angel of the Lord came to Joseph to explain Mary's pregnancy. And you remember what he said? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yes, He will save. Yes, He has come to save. But from what and how? Those are the questions. Now, it's a big week this week. I don't know if you followed the news. Uh, if you did, I'm very proud of you. Uh, it was a historic week in the Supreme Court. I mean, first time in 40 years, there have been three days of argument on a case. 
And I downloaded the audio files from the arguments and listened to all six hours of them. And it was absolutely fascinating. And one of the main issues uh, that they argued about on Wednesday was, you know, the central issue is whether this individual mandate. Now, this sounds political. It's not political is whether this individual mandate in the Affordable uh, Care Act, whether that is constitutional. Okay? And if it's found not to be constitutional, the issue they were arguing about on Wednesday was, okay, if we invalidate that provision of this 2,700-page law, does that mean that the whole law goes? Or can we, if we take that out, uh, can we keep the rest of the law? Now, the government was arguing that, hey, you can take that out and the rest of the law should stand. But the states were arguing, no, you take that out. That's the heart. The whole thing is dead. And it struck me that as I was listening to those arguments, that that is exactly how we, and I put myself in that we, often deal with Jesus. Very much like the crowds on Palm Sunday. We take Jesus and we want to treat him like he's a buffet. Like we can say, okay, we want these parts of him and we don't want these parts. We want a deliverer, but all the rest of his teaching um, or, or significant parts of it, we want to take them away. We want to take those away because we don't like those parts. But we do like the idea of a conquering hero. We do like the idea of a savior. We do want to be able to take certain things out and let the rest of what we think of as Jesus stand. I know, I do that. And nowhere, nowhere, nowhere is this uh, more common than with respect to the very consistent, very pronounced emphasis on the reality of hell in Jesus' teaching. It's overlooked, it's de-emphasized, and it's ignored. People think that they can take that part of Jesus' teaching and his experience out of the Gospels, and they can still have a Jesus. And what we're going to see this morning is the reality of hell is inextricable, not separable, unseverable from the rest of Jesus' teaching and his experience. He makes that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount and in the rest of the Gospel. And so this morning, I want to I connect the dots between Palm Sunday, Holy Week, and this uh, prominent emphasis in our Lord's teaching about the reality of hell as an explanation for his coming, as an explanation for for his teaching, as an explanation for his experience. I want to connect the dots between those two things. And then and then I, I trust, I desire that what what God is going to do for each of us is is take this doctrine this emphasis in our Lord's teaching and use it as a lens through which we view are able to come into a clear view of both the preciousness of what Holy Week is about and the preciousness 
of uh, the table this morning. So two headings this morning after that long introduction, two headings, the reality of hell in Jesus's teaching. And secondly, the reality of hell in Jesus's experience. Let's think first about Jesus's teaching. The reason we should believe in the reality of hell is because Jesus himself believed in the reality of hell. It's as simple as that. If you look in the entire Bible, the the greatest witness, the most consistent witness, the one who emphasizes the reality of eternal judgment, the reality of hell, more than any other single witness in the Bible, and second place is not even a close second, is Jesus Christ. Jesus entered Jerusalem because he believed in the reality of hell. And he knew that apart from his fulfillment of his father's mission during Holy Week to offer himself as the spotless lamb who would be a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people on Friday, that but for his fulfillment of that mission, Every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth would only have one destiny available to them, and it would be destruction. That's why Jesus entered Jerusalem. That's what it means to save his people from their sins. And this is not something that just pops into the gospel accounts, as we'll see here now. At the very end, it's been a prominent emphasis from the beginning. And so there's two ways that the reality of hell shows up in our Lord's teaching. First is that it's in his explicit teaching where he actually mentions hell directly and uses the word that's translated as hell. But also it shows up as a reality uh, implicitly in many of the ways that Jesus uh, teaches throughout the Gospels, as we'll see. So we're going to look at Jesus's explicit teaching and about the reality of hell and also his implicit teaching. Let's think first about uh, Jesus's explicit teaching about the reality of hell. And we don't have to venture beyond the Sermon on the Mount. That's why I had uh, Paul read these uh, portions of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings it up himself, right, uh, in three places. Really, yeah, three separate places in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 22 in the context of talking about anger. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, if you're listening to Jesus's teaching the first time, you think that's crazy. If I'm just angry with my brother, there's going to be a trial. So it even begins in a way that kind of shocks us. But the way it ends. Should take our breath away. Jesus, in the context of just talking about an insult, which every person in this room has said to more than one person and certainly thought. And certainly enjoys and laughs at television programs where we watch other people say those things to each other. Right. Or reads blogs where we say those things or we watch as other people say those things to each other. Our culture loves this stuff. And Jesus says, hell is implicated in that. And then verses 29 and 30. 
If your right eye causes you in the context of lust, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Hell. Now, I want you to notice three things about these three verses uh, that three things uh, that Jesus believes, according to these verses. One, he believes in hell's existence, right? He's not talking about some kind of theoretical thing. He believes in hell's existence. Now, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the word that is translated as hell is uh, the word Gehenna or Gehenna. And it refers to a place of burning. Uh, The name comes from a a valley outside of Jerusalem where during the days of the kings, uh, when there was idolatrous practice, uh, there was child sacrifice to the Canaanite god Molech and children were burned in a furnace as offerings to that god. And later on, uh, Gehenna became the, the dump for the city of Jerusalem where the garbage was burned, always burning. And so it's a picture, Gehenna is a picture of burning and suffering, a place of torment and forsakenness. So Jesus clearly believes in the existence of hell as a real place. The reason we should believe in, in hell is because Jesus did. The second thing that these three verses show us about what Jesus believed about hell is that he believed in hell's what I'll call universal relevance. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by it is that the way Jesus describes it, the way it comes up, the way he introduces it in the flow of his argument here, he is clearly not assuming, as we would be so prone to do, that hell is a prospect that is only reserved for the very worst periphery of humankind. The Stalins, the Hitlers, the Maos, the Bin Ladens, or whoever you want to put in that category. By linking it to the most ordinary and common of human experiences. What we might think of as garden variety sins. Ordinary in our culture. In fact, encouraged by our culture. Jesus says and warns us that eternity is much closer than we tend to think. It's a very sober warning. He's saying, listen, if hell can be implicated by a simple insult or by a lustful longing, not even an act beyond the longing, then that means that there is no human being for whom this reality is not meant to feel and be of the utmost urgency. The reason we should believe in the universal relevance of hell is because Jesus did. The reason we should feel the nearness of eternity in and its relevance and its importance in the most ordinary details of our lives, our thought lives, what we do with our mouths, what we do with our hearts, is because Jesus believed that those things were relevant. 
He believed that eternity was that close. Third, notice uh, what these uh, verses on, uh, the, from the Sermon on the Mount tell us about what Jesus believed about the urgency of avoiding hell. And this isn't practical for just a small portion of the uh, population. This is something that he is saying. You know, he says, and it's, it is figurative language. He's saying, listen, if you're, this is so serious. If your eye causes you to sin, then you need to pluck. It's better for you to pluck it out and not have it than to go with that eye and the rest of your body into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, something that you value causes you to sin, it is better. Sin is so serious. The gravity of sin is to be taken so seriously in its consequences that it is better to lose your right hand than to keep it. Keep that stumbling block to still hold on to it and then to keep it and then to enter into hell with the whole of your body. You see what he's talking about is really the gravity of sin. And he's saying there is no price that is too high to pay. It's an indirect picture, if you will, of how horrible he believes hell to be. Because he's saying no price is too high. Now, friends, I I know that this is not how the 21st century teaches you to think. I know that this is not you know, what Jesus is, is teaching, and we'll see it again and again, is that there are only two ways in life. Only two. And just even in saying that, right, we have, we have said we, we are standing against all the weight and momentum of our culture and every lesson that American society in the 21st century is teaching us, that the whole world really is teaching us. Only two ways. There's a way to life, and that way is the way that Jesus marks out and that is offered through Him alone. And then there is every other way. And every one of those other ways away from Jesus leads to destruction. Now, you have to trust Jesus in order to believe Him. So why should you trust Him? What makes Him any different from any other teacher? What makes Him any different? Why should you trust Jesus against and His description of what ultimate reality is and the nearness of eternity and why it is so critical for every human being to face us? Why should you trust Him over against all the weight of the cultural opinion and even some of your deepest held preferences? And I'll tell you why. And I'm already jumping into the last section of the sermon. Because Jesus, for Jesus, hell was not a theoretical reality. From the very beginning, his plan, the way he was going to save his people from their sins, was by enduring the hell their sins had earned in his own body on the cross. So he's not talking like an armchair counselor here. He's talking like a man who knows that he has been destined to enter hell itself as the substitute of his people. That's why you should trust him. Let's think about uh, Matthew 10.28 now. Turn with me to Matthew 10.28. 
which is page 815 in the Pew Bible. This is in the context of a discussion about discipleship and and the the reality of persecution that his disciples will face. And in the context of of that discussion where Jesus acknowledges uh, the reality that, hey, that's a fearful prospect to think that by representing Jesus, we're going to incur the wrath of men. And Jesus says something he's so shocking here in terms of how he diagnoses our hearts. Look at verse 28 and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, who's that him? It's God. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the way you avoid the fear of man is by properly fearing God. The reason that we are fearful of men is that there is not enough fear of God in our lives. If we really thought carefully about the greatness of God, think about what Jesus has been saying about the gravity of sin. If we thought truly and accurately about the greatness of God, do you know that in our galaxy alone they estimate that there are a hundred billion stars? And that they estimate that our Galaxy is only one of a hundred billion galaxies. And I remind you again, one of my favorite statistics, every second our sun exists, it consumes and fuses 700 million tons of hydrogen. Just our sun. God is not to be trifled with. When Paul is explaining the end of Romans 3, why it is that the wrath of God has been revealed against the unrighteousness of men, he summarizes it this way in a quote from Psalm 36. He says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's very much an echo of what Jesus is saying here. But it's not just explicit for Jesus. It's also uh, implicit. Go with me uh, back to chapter 7. Right, which we've touched on. I'll only do this uh, very quickly. We, In our first message in the Sermon on the Mount, we start things, we do things backwards here. We start at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and then verses we, we look particularly at, at Jesus' exhortation in verses 13 and 14, and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, he doesn't use the word hell, right? But he is clearly describing the, the two, only two options of the future life. Every human being has a future life. I mean, this is one of the great things uh, that, that is implicit in the doctrine of the future life, the doctrine of heaven and hell. And it's this. Do you see, friends, how much your lives matter? You see, this... What Jesus is saying there is that every human life is a life of eternal significance. Don't ever 
Don't ever think that your life doesn't matter. You know, the consequences of believing that the light, that the universe began with an accident that we cannot explain means that everything that happens after that accident is still itself an accident that we can't explain. And that means when you get all the way to your life, it means that your life has no meaning. God doesn't agree with that. And Jesus wants to remind us. There's only two ways, only two destinies. Go with me to chapter 13. This is the chapter on the parables. Uh, The parable of the wheat and the tares. We're going to look mostly at chapter 13, verses 40 through 43. But you know... The parable of the wheat and the tears in Matthew 13 is a collection of uh, and I can't wait till we get there. But don't ask me to predict when we're going to get there. OK, I love this chapter, but it's a wonderful chapter full of where Matthew has collected uh, Jesus's parables about the nature of the kingdom. And one of the parables he tells is uh, depending on your translation here, it's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. But in most uh, other translations, it's called the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in that parable, what happens is Jesus says the kingdom is like this. There's a landowner and he plants good seed, wheat. And the wheat starts to grow. But then while his servants are asleep, the man's enemy comes in and plants weeds. And when the servants wake up, they look and they say, hey, master, we've got weeds growing alongside the wheat. Do you want us to take the weeds out? Now, the word that Jesus uses to describe weeds is is the word for tares. And if you look up what a tear is, a tear looks a lot like wheat. So it'd be very easy to confuse the tear for the wheat. And so the master knows that his servants, while well-intentioned, are perhaps not as competent as they need to be for such a delicate sorting task. And he says, no, because if you guys start pulling up the tares, you might also pull up some wheat. And I don't want you to do that. Let let let's hold off until the end of the harvest. And when Jesus explains this parable later on, his disciples, you know, that what does that mean? So later on in chapter 13, the disciples come and say, could you could we go over that wheat and tares one again? And so Jesus explains it, starting in verse 40, just as the well, actually, let's start at verse 38. The field is the world. Well, the the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. So there's a this is a vision of the future, right? The consequences of the present, the future consequences, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. So will it be at the close of the age. The son of man will send his angels. That's Jesus will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, great suffering, unending sorrow. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. If we had time, We could look, and I encourage you to do it this afternoon, to look at the parable of the net. 
which ends Matthew 13, same thing. Net goes out, good fish, bad fish gathered, bad fish thrown away. See, Jesus, and, and ultimately in chapter 25, when Jesus uh, no longer is telling a parable, but is actually describing the future, when he will sit on his judgment throne as the king at the end of history, and, the, and he will sort humanity, and the goats will go onto his left, and the sheep, his people, onto the right, and he will send the, the goats, those who have not been his people, he will say to them, According to Jesus, then he, meaning Jesus, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, friends, you see, it's pervasive, it's consistent, it's prominent. There is no way to take this part of Jesus' teaching out of the mix and then say, but we want to keep the rest of Jesus. Because Jesus understands the whole purpose of his coming as being about rescuing men, women, and children from that fate. To teach us about the seriousness of human life and the greatness of God and the gravity of sin and therefore the greatness of the gospel and the one who brings the gospel that rescues us from sin. You see, the only way to to trivialize hell is to trivialize Jesus. There's nothing left of his teaching. But then there's the element of Jesus' experience and the reality of hell in Jesus' experience. Which is particularly relevant to us during Holy Week. You know, you've heard of black holes before. Um, now, by definition, you can't see a black hole because light can't escape from a black hole. The gravitational power is so strong. So the way you know a black hole exists is you watch the stuff. You watch its effects on the stuff around the black hole. And so even though we don't see hell open up during Holy Week, we can see its effects on Jesus, the part of Jesus that we do see, the part that the Holy Spirit has recorded for us in the Gospels, and we see it in two ways. We see it, the reality of hell in Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane and also on the cross. Think about the dread of Jesus in the Garden. I mean, Jesus is, Luke says that his sweat, he was so intensely burdened that his sweat fell like drops of blood on the ground. Jesus, who has never asked his father in his entire life to not do something, asks the father three times that if there's any other way for him to fulfill the mission of saving his people from their sins besides the cross, would he please grant that that other way could be followed? And three times, the Father is silent. Now, how you would explain Jesus' dread in the garden? Is he simply afraid of death? Is he dreading physical pain? Is he dreading the shame of crucifixion? I don't think so. 
I don't think that explains, I don't think those things are a big enough weight to cause the Son of God, who his entire ministry, right, had been rejecting Satan in the wilderness for suggesting a crossless path to his glory, had rebuked Peter for suggesting in Matthew 16 a crossless path to his glory, and had taught so consistently that he would suffer and die and be raised again. Can we really explain his dread in the garden in terms of just physical suffering or the reality of crucifixion? None of those is big enough to explain how the Son of God could be under such fear and trembling that he would plead with his father three times to take the cup away. The only explanation is that Jesus knew that what was in that cup was the wrath of God unlimited. And that what went with that cup was the ultimate forsakenness that is the definition of hell. So think about Jesus on the cross. How do you explain the speed of his death? Pilate was shocked when Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for the body. Pilate was shocked that Jesus was dead. Pilate was shocked that the soldiers didn't have to break Jesus' legs in order to accelerate his death. He was already dead. How do you explain the swiftness of his death? How do you explain the reality of darkness, not from a solar eclipse because it was Passover and Passover happened during a full moon? How do you explain the reality for that the last three hours of Jesus' crucifixion, there was darkness on the land? How do you explain that the last words that Matthew records that Jesus spoke from the cross were taken from Psalm 22.1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do you explain that? What does that mean? That is Jesus teaching us the meaning of His cross. That's Jesus giving to His people and all generations of His people, even to us, the interpretation of His suffering. And He's saying that at the cross, on the cross, as He was there, what He was enduring for His people, the way that He had to go in order to save His people from their sins and to fulfill His mission was literally to take upon Himself the damnation that His people had earned because of their sins. He Himself was cast out into that place of outer darkness. On the cross, He Himself was in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, On the cross, He was the one whose body had been thrown into hell. And He went there voluntarily. On the cross, He was the one who endured the full weight of the just condemnation of the holy God against the sins of His people. Where the future, the cross was the future judgment being brought into the present so that all the earth could see that God is not joking about this. And now in the mercy of God, just think about this, friends. In the mercy of God, you see... God was perfectly entitled to bring the full judgment all at once then. 
But what He's done is He has given the substitute in His Son to bear the sins of His people, to take the weight of damnation on Himself so that all who trust in Him, all who repent of their sins and look to Christ alone for their salvation, that all of them will have that great weight, that wrath of God that John talks about, that that will not remain on them anymore because it's been placed on Jesus and borne by Him as their substitute. Friends, it's absolutely incredible. And we live in the age of mercy where God has shown His bona fides. He has shown that this is not a a fantasy. This is a reality. And you and I live in the age of opportunity to respond to Christ, to embrace Him, to see in His life and in His death this great Savior who has come to save us from our sins. Not, not sins as flaws or imperfections of our character, but as these great cosmic offenses against the great God whose greatness is greater than all the languages of the world. If you assembled the greatest poets in history could ever sing. And Jesus has come to give himself to be cast out that we might be brought in. Friends, he knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew all that. He knew that when he entered Jerusalem, he was going to be entering that outer darkness for us. And he still went in. He still went in. No price. No price was too high for him to pay. No price. He was willing to be cut off from his father, from men. Why? Because no one else could endure what he was called to endure. Only he Only he was qualified to save. And that's still true today. That is the meaning of Palm Sunday. So friends, as we come to the table this morning, may God grant that we will have a clear vision both of the price that Jesus paid to purchase this table for us and the preciousness of the fellowship with God that He has purchased for us that this table represents. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for such a great Savior, such a great Son, such a great King, such a great champion of His people. And we pray for the ministry of your spirit to take our hearts and to lead them to Christ again and to draw out of this the love and devotion and sincere praise of which our king is worthy. Oh, how we thank you for Jesus, who when he looked to the future, saw our future apart from him and he made it his own that we might receive his great future of blessedness. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.